Welcome to Teaching Python. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who recently began teaching. And I'm Kelly Schuster Paredes. I'm a teacher who recently began to code. Well, we're really excited this week. We're joined by two amazing teachers of Python and of agriculture. We're joined by Karen Hildebrand and Teresa Vallot from Farm Femmes. Why don't you take a, just a couple seconds to introduce yourself, Karen, and, and then we'll go to Teresa and we, um, then we'll jump into our wins of the week. Sure. As you mentioned, I'm Karen Hildebrand, and I have worked in the field of AI for about 15 years and worked in the literal field in agriculture for about uh, 35 plus years. So really excited that in the past 18 months, uh, we've really been working at FarmFem to see the collision of those two fields. And I am Karen's older sister, Teresa. My connection to this, as Karen said, is on the farm. We grew up on the farm, and then my background is in teaching, so I taught high school math. I have teachables in biology and physics, and then uh, my last few years I spent coaching teachers on teaching math, and now I am farming full-time. That's amazing. I actually saw an article, and this is how I got in contact with you guys from the CBC, .ca, I'm assuming Canada, <laughs> Canada, um, post and you were on a Twitter feed and it was just amazing to read your story. I'm really excited to meet you. Yeah, it was great when Kelly brought it over to me. I got really excited. My my mom grew up on a farm in northern Montana and so I spent a lot of childhood summers going there during harvest time and it was really great. It was a lot of wheat and barley farming and and cattle and, and everything. So it was really great to, to see all the things that you've been doing, and I'm really excited to learn more about it because it touches a place near and dear to my heart. Great. Thanks for having us on. Good. So we are going to start the way we always do with the wins of the week. Karen, do you have a win you'd like to share with us this week, something great that's happened inside or outside of the classroom? Uh, so I would say the win so far is it spring seeding on Deer Creek Farms is complete. Uh, so all the seeds are in the ground and ready to start growing. Excellent. That's great. Teresa, would you like to go next? Sure. Uh, the win at Valaton Farms was that we got the sunflowers finished in between rains. So we have two crops left. We have edible beans and canola. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Do you want to go, Sean, with your first win of the week? Or <laughs> Well, sure. So the win of the week that for me this week um, was uh, I got a late night last minute invitation to fly up to Cape Canaveral to watch a SpaceX launch at night in a small plane. And it was this most amazing nighttime VFR flight with all the lights and the coastline and, and everything. And I grew up in a place where there was a lot of rural flying. So it was really great to go do that again. And, you know, unfortunately, we got about five minutes out from the launch and they scrubbed it. So I didn't get a chance to actually see the launch, but the flight alone was worth it. That's excellent. I was watch, uh, watching it on Twitter. I was a little bit jealous. Coming from Sebastian, Cape Canaveral is only about 45 minutes from my hometown. So it was kind of, uh, I was a little bit jealous. So my wins of the week, I actually have two. Um, one that's coding and one that is another little place to my heart. We, this week we have seventh graders reading their online Spanish books that they wrote to the little kids. So I get to do two things, see the seventh graders interact with the little kids and then bring my son up to get read in Spanish just to to promote bilingualism in education. So that's been a fun day today. It's been a hectic day. But on top of that, one of my seventh graders just sent me a turtle python code where he used an iterator to reduce the size of the of the pen. 
or increase the size of the pen and he made an ice cream cone and I'm going to tweet that later once I once I get the picture out but it's such a, such a great little thing he was working on he says look what I just did and I said of course you did 30 you know 20 minutes awesome you're amazing so it's great it's a good one excellent well I'm glad to hear it's been a very productive and positive week for all of us um, let's jump right in because um, I'm just frankly, just very excited to learn more about Farm Femmes. So Karen and Teresa, can you tell us a little bit about Farm Femmes and how it got started, where you're where you are today and kind of what what's the goal? Where are you where are you heading with this? Karen and I started Farm Femmes about 18 months ago with the intention of sort of connecting all of our interests with agriculture, with advanced technology and and really opening up a conversation about how ag is high tech and how there's lots of ways to connect into agriculture beyond just the primary producer. And we need a diverse set of skills to come and support that. And I think we all want to eat. We all want to have everyone be able to eat, have a, an abundance of healthy food available to them. So there's no better job than being directly connected into feeding that food supply. And, and so that's what we wanted to try to really speak to people about and say, Here's how you can connect into something that's really big and really important. And then it's um, a project that we value because it connects all the generations for our, for our farming operations together. So we get a chance to work with our parents, talk to and hear stories from our grandparents, and connect our kids into it. And because farming is that multi-generational industry, we really needed to talk about or think about and talk to people about how they can connect in that next gen with the tech skills that they really are interested in. I think that's fabulous. I think um, even in the middle school, we tried to make this connection of how is tech going to affect their lives and, and to be able to hear your story. And I, I guess sometimes when you're not really around agriculture, you forget that this happens. Luckily for us in Florida, we have lots of um, orange farms and uh, we see a lot of that. But just to see that you're doing this connection and, and working with others in the community is great. One of the things that struck me when I was growing up and, and visiting my uncle's farm in Montana was just how technology was infused into pretty much everything they did from the equipment that they used to just information about markets and market pricing. I mean, I remember being absolutely fascinated that my uncle had a satellite feed of pricing for all of his crops so that he could see live real-time, you know, information back in the, you know, early late 80s early 90s in the middle of rural Montana to see exactly what was happening in all of the trading desks around the world for the crops that he was raising. And it just was amazing to me to really recognize as sort of a city kid in a lot of ways, just how technology focused agriculture actually is and how it really makes such a huge difference in productivity, sustainability, reducing waste, uh, just so many aspects of, of modern agriculture. Karen, you are in the data science industry. Yes. You're now back into the agricultural industry as well, or are you mixing, combining the two? So I also still work uh, in high tech. So I do lead a data science team for a very large company, and you can go and see who that company is on LinkedIn. Uh, I do lead a team of that uh, as well, in addition to FarmFem. Really what we wanted to do is kind of make sure that we were having that connection still to building the next generation of uh, technically skilled individuals. Obviously, I hire those in my real world uh, job as, 
addition to what we're doing in the farming world. So the more people that are educated with those skills, the better off we all are. So we really wanted to make sure that we filled that gap because it's a, it's a significant gap. We need people with those technology and coding capabilities. So the next thing I wanted to ask was, so this next generation, you're starting day camps or you've done day camps with them to help them learn the basics of AI. Can you tell us a little bit about how that started and how it's working for you? Sure. So we know that kids really like to uh, spend time with technology. It actually started with our own kids. And it was in science fair projects uh, over the past, you know, several years where they were trying to come up with something unique and different that nobody else would be doing at science fair. And so we started working. I've worked with AWS for quite a few years now. And they have a really approachable platform where kids can be successful. Um, and so for uh, several years, we were doing that, you know, just with our own kids and helping them learn. And then we thought, there's really great egg applications of this. How could we help more kids to be exposed to this? And obviously, we're really excited that you guys are teaching this in the classroom and that you have an audience of teachers. That's so great. And we... We want more kids to have exposure. And obviously, we are hosting the camps in a number of rural communities to try and encourage um, kids that might not otherwise have a classroom available to be able to learn this in, uh, to have exposure. But we really are excited to have as many kids as possible have some level of awareness of the amount of AI that they're capable of doing. And we kept our camps to one day because we want kids to realize that they could be successful in a day building an AI model. And in fact, in a day, they'll build three AI models in our camp. So that's kind of the way that we've structured it because we really want kids to see that success. And more importantly, we want their parents to see the success too um, because that's what helps parents continue to invest in that for their kids. That's amazing. This episode of Teaching Python is brought to you by you, our listeners, through Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter like Thomas Eckert, Brian Aachen from the Test and Code podcast, or Natasha Samalenko, you can help us out at patreon.com slash teachingpython. Give a few bucks. It really helps us out. Thanks. Back to the show. And Teresa, as an educator, are you still overwhelmed about how great it is, how kids can learn something in a day? Because everyone asks us, how do we get the kids coding in Python in nine weeks? And, I, and it's doable, right? what kids can do today and I was so excited when we got your your contact in the inbox and said like we're doing this this is part of our regular curriculum and it would be amazing if that would be available for all kids but as Karen said we know that right now that's not a reality and so that's where camps come in and it really is just here's a one-day investment in getting curious piquing that interest a bit more and then seeing success in that first day it's amazing and kids can see success in just such a short time and be so inspired or turned on or turned around to say, hey, this could be a passion of mine. And of course, for us, we would love to influence people to say, hey, let's think about how we could apply these skills into the food system and agriculture. But we also recognize that that there's many places where those skills can be applied. And as Karen said, the more kids that have exposure to that and then can pursue whatever area of interest they want, that's great. That's a win for all of us. Yeah, that's inspiring. When, when we were at PyCon, there were a lot of women. Um, uh, there, I was surprised to see there were more women there. I had this vision that there weren't going to be that many women, but still it was definitely skewed in the numbers. And just to see the two of you 
helping not only girls but other stu other children to get involved with AI and technology and agriculture is just great. So what are some of those basics that you teach um, in that day camp? What are some of the areas that you focus on or things that are the early lessons for, for students to take away from the day camp? Okay, so um, I think our main focus is in three or four areas. First being image recognition. So our application in that sense is security, security on farm, but also, of course, that would go to many industries. And then we're going to talk to students a little bit about speech to text and converting text to speech and what does that look like? How can we use that for supporting multiple languages? Back to what Kelly was talking about earlier. And then chatbots will be the last thing. So some sort of interactive experience that students can design. Our example for them to work through is booking an appointment for a, a vet because I think we thought that was a really familiar, accessible sort of uh, starting spot. But then when students hopefully see chatbots out as they're perusing around, they can say, hey, I, I could do that. I could design that. I know how that works. So those are our, our main starting spots. And how does that translate into what they would see as you know, as agriculture um, specialists, as producers, or you know, part of the production pipeline? What kind of technologies in AI are really making the biggest difference that you can see in the industry? There's some pretty cool applications of those three. And then Teresa has even kind of some additional ones that they're using on their farm that I just get blown away by. I get really excited. So I could nerd out for quite a while. So you might have to cut me off. <laughs> Image recognition. We're going to talk about it in the, in the camps in the context of security cameras just because that's really familiar. But if you think about it in an agricultural application, it's really cool what they're doing now with spraying technologies. So as the machine is moving across the field, it's, the cameras are actually recognizing the types of weeds that are in the field as well as where the crop is. So that they can be really specific. The nozzle that is above that weed can be spraying the right chemical on the weed, but you're not getting it on uh, overspray on all the land. So it's kind of from an environmentally friendly standpoint, sustainability, but using image recognition at 12 miles an hour is pretty amazing. And I know 12 miles an hour sounds slow, but for a tractor, that's pretty good. Um, right, so especially when you think about how much is being covered, right? How many plants are going underneath that tractor at any given time? Exactly, and that's where when you think about Python, the fact that Python is such a low latency language really is where most of that kind of real-time edge node computing is happening. So when you're thinking about the sensors that are capturing that image, processing the machine learning to do the image recognition and then sending the signal to the sprayer, that's all Python um, underneath that. Now, serverless architecture and the, you know, a lot of other ways that it's happening that quickly, but if you're thinking about connecting that back to what you're teaching in the classroom, that's Python. So that's pretty cool. From a text-to-speech standpoint, it can be everything from sentiment analysis and natural language processing for, you know, the social media manager at any of these uh, really big organizations. So if you're John Deere and you're getting a bunch of tweets that my part is breaking down in the field all the time, your social media manager wants to be able to bubble up that sentiment and respond quickly. So it can be, you know, as simple as that, and that's part of the examples we'll use. But then I think, you know, as Teresa will even talk about a little bit later, text-to-speech is really helpful. One, farmers are doing a lot of maintenance themselves. So if you are underneath a tractor and you need that maintenance manual 
you don't want to be climbing back out, reading it with your greasy hands, and then climbing back under and trying to fix that. You would much rather be able to say, hey, similar to Alexa, right? Hey, read me page 400 of the instruction manual. Where is this part supposed to go again? So that it can be responding back to you. Or if you're in the case of Teresa's Farm, where they have multiple international trainees, if you're speaking to somebody and English is their second language, it's super helpful if you can translate that back and have it in speech rather than in writing. So uh, just making sure that you're really understanding each other, communication is kind of a key factor in that and being able to do that in an automated way is really helpful. And then obviously from the chatbot perspective, there's so many applications for that, but we really think that the um, being able to schedule appointments is kind of a big thing for farmers, especially when they're in the midst of a busy season. If that's calving and you need um, all your shots given by the vet, great. Tell me how many head of cattle. Um, if it is interacting with, you know, your spray provider for somebody that's doing aerial spraying, all of those are really easy applications related to that. Now I'll let Teresa talk about some of the other super cool things that they have going on. I'll stop. <laughs> oh, super cool. I don't know about super cool. I think just the amount of communication between all of those pieces of equipment, like Karen was talking about, we have equipment that we want to put in our seeds all the way through, then we want to harvest and we want to connect that all back to each other. Then we want to connect that back to the geography of the land, just the lay of the land in general, so that we can take all those soil tests and all the water, the irrigation, so say smart irrigation, is it irrigating or not based on the natural rainfall? You wanna take all of that information from all of those inputs and then look at what did it look like at harvest? What was the result, right, of all of those mm -hmm. inputs? What's the, how did the crop produce? And what are the variables that went into changing that? It's a long loop for a growing season. And so it's important to capture all of that information and then use that to the best of our advantage to make the best decisions we can. Because we get here anyways, we have one growing season a year. So we get one chance to do it and then we have to wait, you know, for a whole nother year. So uh, we want to use that information the best we can. That's great. I didn't even think about that with predictive modeling of crop yields and things like that. It's a fascinating use case for it. I remember one season when I was, you know, on the farm that there was a, they had a particular field that was producing at a really high number of bushels per acre or something like that. And I'm probably getting all the terms wrong, but well, you it was, got it. <laughs> so remember it. But everyone was like marveling over this, you know, look, look at this high yield patch that we have. And it was in this very localized part of the farm that they had. And what would it look like if they could sustainably replicate that across all parts of the farm? What are the inputs? What are the characteristics that you need to make that happen so that you don't have to go get more land and more fertilizer and more inputs to be able to make more crop? Like, it's really a cool um, application. We have a finite land base that we need to work with as producers. And so how do we maximize the efficiency of that and the productivity of that while we're being financially responsible and environmentally responsible? So, yep. Teresa, on a, on a coding question, this is not on the outline. Sorry, I'm going to throw you for a loop. It's an easy question. But on the coding side, do you understand the background, like the heavy black background that, that Karen does? or Absolutely not. I would say Karen and I are a partnership much like you and Sean, where we're better together, yeah. right? <laughs> Absolutely. So we each bring our own strengths to the table, and then we're better as a team than we are as individuals. 
Excellent. I, I, I always try to tell the, the kids, especially the kids that do not like coding, because every one of our students have to take computer science for nine weeks in the middle school. And I try to explain to them, you do not necessarily need to go code a 500 line you know, program by the end of the quarter, but what I want you to do is to have an appreciation of how that changes your life. And I think you guys have really modeled that well in, in what you're doing. Well, it's a flashback, right? Like when I was taking coding at university, flashback, that was C++. That was very like, woo, right? <laughs> I think Karen dated us how old we were earlier. So if that didn't it, this might. It is it's that it's the way of thinking, it's the process of thinking about how that works. That's that's a really important teachable skill. And whether a student in grade six, seven, or eight is thinking, wow, I just really love this coding experience, that skill set and that in the back of their head that that exists, that possibility exists, that's huge going forward. And I wanted to ask you about, um, you mentioned AWS. We have we know a couple people that work for AWS. I have never used AWS uh, Educate. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that yeah. side? Maybe. Yeah, AWS has done a really nice job of trying to make make environments that are really easy to use in um, deploying models in general, but really approachable from a, a kid's perspective as well. So AWS Educate, you can sign up there. They have uh, lesson plans. They have free access. Anybody that signs up for an AWS account has free access for a year. So if kids even want to be working on it at home, um, that gives them, uh, if they have obviously internet access at home, um, it gives them the ability to extend that learning uh, in a free environment, which is really nice. So for those kids that really do want to extend their learning beyond, you know, the nine weeks or beyond even what we're doing in a day, they have the ability to do that, which is really great. The other really beneficial thing is everything AWS has done is broken it down into microservices. So I think uh, we had talked a little bit about what languages we program in. So uh, Python can be used, you know, in native Python, but you could also use it within Spark as an underlying machine learning uh, language, or you can use it in serverless architecture in order to execute a real-time call. You could use multiple services within AWS to achieve different results, all while using the same programming language. There's lots of different uh, ways you could kind of step up or progress through your lessons with that. Really, obviously, having no cost is, is really beneficial. <laughs> okay. sure. What are some of the challenges that your students are facing when it comes to accessibility for computer science? I mean, I can imagine that in many places, internet access by itself is not a given, right? Especially something that may have enough bandwidth to be able to do some of the work that you're talking about. Um, are there other accessibility challenges that your students face? Uh, so I would say that's the number one. Rural internet access still remains an issue everywhere. The U.S. obviously just did a big uh, funding package for increasing the adoption of 5G with the intent of that providing some greater coverage in rural areas, and obviously that is really important for IoT. But when you're thinking about that with agriculture, everything that is happening on your tractor is an IoT-connected device. That's really important. So internet access is obviously key, but then um, school size is small in rural communities. So what courses are you going to offer? Um, and so that, I think, is a, a challenge as well. Uh, Teresa, maybe you have some you'd like to add on that? No, I think you hit the two key points. First, from a 
producer point of view and then from a student and teacher point of view that rural and remote areas for access that's huge and not just access but access at a sufficient capacity so that you can actually do some real work so that's huge and then rural communities from a technology adoption point of view where how can we think creatively about how can we bring teachers in if we don't have them physically in our space how can we bring them in by technology so that our students can still have access to those skill sets even if we maybe don't have a physical teacher in the room to do that the other question i had too was are there any particular challenges that you see for women or young women in this space trying to get started and i just share this as my own my own experience one of the things that struck me again on on the farm was that you know, in my mom's era when she was growing up in the 50s and 60s, there were some pretty clear roles defined by gender on the farm, right? Who did what and, and who had which responsibilities? And I'm assuming that has changed, but in what ways? Like, how, is this something where there are still some clearly defined roles for women in agriculture or are some of those barriers gone or dissipating? I would say from my experience, some of those barriers are dissipating or certainly not gone. There's been a recent study that even was talking about um, North America compared to the rest of the world. And we are maybe lagging behind in how females feel about their acceptance in the field of agriculture. However, there's certainly been positive steps in that direction. You will certainly look around in an ag community and see many more women in visible roles. And I think to your point about your family's um, farm and in the in the historical sort of sense of what that looked like women were working very hard on the farm and have been for many generations but how that work was viewed or how publicly it was talked about is beginning to change certainly so that's that's positive and I think Karen and I were fortunate to um, have parents who said here's a set of work that needs to get done here are the people who are here to do it let's dig in that was helpful from a point of view of our dad really saying you can do anything that you set your mind to and I'm willing to teach you any job that you want to do or that needs to get done, frankly. Right. Uh, and that was one of the things that I took away personally was that everybody worked hard. And there were, at the time, I think there were roles that people were maybe put into, even if that wasn't what they wanted to do. But everyone still worked hard and they were all contributing. But I'm glad to hear that, you know, at least in your experience, um, that it has it has started to move towards the if you want to do it go for it. Yeah, and we were talking earlier, like before we were recording here, about just the ways that you do something might be different. So part of it is lifting, for example, the the tailgate of a truck in order to unload it. Well, I physically can't do that. I'm too short. I can't make it go. So we had to have you know a remote control robotic device that actually dad installed on our truck so I can stand back and it lifts itself. So obviously there's technology in that, it's lifting, there's a remote control, it's really cool and I can still get the same job done, I just can't do it the same way. So we there has to be some openness to thinking creatively but for us that's actually what brought a lot of the technology to our our parents' farm, and now, you know, as we've progressed on to Teresa's farm as well. That's okay. pretty exciting because that image sensing sprayer that you're talking about, it doesn't care the gender of the person that programmed it or this, their physical size or any sort of challenges that they may have, um, whether they're physical limitations or anything like that. It's still like, it's just the power of your mind and how creative you can be at solving the problem. Yep, yep. exactly. 
And I think it's interesting, and also on the data science side, Karen, it's, did you feel there was a, a less females in your role or to have both data, being a data scientist and in the agricultural, both of you work in a pretty male dominant area, no? Is that uh, fair to say? I think one of our blog posts from like a year and a bit ago was, I was at a strata conference in New York City for data science and uh, I walked into the bathroom and I could have chosen any stall that I wanted. There was not a single other person there and I was like, the one time that there was a lineup in the men's bathroom and not in the women's. Like, I was kind of excited about it, but it's also a problem. <laughs> there should be a lot more. <laughs> um, so I, I would say there's definitely opportunity. I, w I will say um, there is a lot of movement in both spaces. I'm really lucky um, in that diversity of thought is really important in both fields right now. And I think the progress being made is faster than I've seen it in, you know, the pre in the last five years has accelerated significantly from the 10 years before that. Well, I want to get a couple more questions because we have about five more minutes with you guys. What type of careers are there in specific, if we could guide students in, in either a field dealing with agriculture and data science, what kind of, careers do you think we can point them to or some degrees maybe that they should focus on in college? So the first thing would be the role of a traditional agronomist will still exist. Agronomy as a field will still exist, but what that looks like might be different. But that's huge as far as if we're talking about soil health. So if you have any interest in biology and growing, that area still needs lots of high-tech skill sets. Then if we want to talk about imagery, that's another huge area that will need more people. Drone imagery, satellite imagery, and how we connect that imagery. We're also going to need, in this transition time, eventually this will be a skill set that hopefully everyone just has, but as we transition, we're going to need some people to help bridge and liaise between the farmer, the producer, and the developers of the new technology to say how does this work together so I think that's a really important thing that would sometimes be overlooked but the communication skills that are required for that will be huge and then as Karen mentioned some things that could be handled by robotics particularly heavy lifting things that are say chemical materials those sorts of things that we could automate that would be huge yeah I totally agree like from that standpoint just robotics, anything to do with machine learning is really helpful to have as a background. If you're thinking about degree paths, I would encourage everybody, regardless of what degree is their primary, take a minor in computer science or data science or even just uh, focusing on specific computer programming classes as some of their electives. Um, I think every field will have some version of AI in it. So again, it's kind of back to that awareness. You don't have to be an AI programmer if that's not what you're interested in, but that bridge capability is something that's super special to be able to say, hey, maybe I'm a medical doctor, but I want to be able to talk to the guy who's doing the robotic arm. So I need to have that undergrad degree that has you know, the ability to span kind of that tech stack. Or in the case of tractors right now, cars are uh, autonomous vehicles, so are tractors. And those capabilities are all coming out in the next, you know, 10 years. But that will be their introduction into the field. 
all tractors, combines, etc., in the next 30 years will be transitioning to that kind of autonomous operation. So how do we um, have those skill sets that are, you know, agriculture, robotics, autonomous vehicles, those are all skills and jobs that will exist. Um, in the in the coming decades, for sure. This is one of the things that's most fascinating about agriculture is it's kind of like the sleeper cutting edge. If you're not necessarily involved in it, you don't necessarily notice how much of that is happening. You know, Kelly and I were at a at the National Robotics Engineering Center in Pittsburgh this summer for some training. It's affiliated with Carnegie Mellon, we saw some self-driving tractors there, things that were being used for orange groves right here in Florida to be able to do spraying directly on the plants rather than overhead and into the you know rows where it didn't really make any sense. So it's really kind of fascinating if you think about it. It's kind of easier in some ways to have a tractor driving through a field where there's not really a lot of other cars or pedestrians than it has to drive them on city streets. So all of that development in autonomous vehicles is really like the best place to have that happen is in the middle of a field in the middle of Canada or in South Dakota. Perfected there where you have no pedestrians. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, as we're finishing up, um, any advice for teachers trying to get students into a field or trying to convince girls into either field data science or agriculture, any advice that you want to give teachers out there? One, congratulations on even just asking the question. That's awesome. It's great to see that that's a conversation. And obviously, you know, we want to be helping anybody who's interested in adding this type of curriculum. And so if there is any way in which we can support you guys going forward or we can support any teacher that's listening, you know, please feel free to reach out to us because I think we are firm believers that there is a ton of space in this education uh, of students and making sure that they all have the skill sets that they need going forward. So that's, first of all, congratulations. Second, I think it is showing people that there are others out there already doing this. So being able to see somebody else and model what you want to do makes a huge difference, I think. Just knowing that you're not going to be the first. You're not going to be, you might be, it might still be hard, no lie. There might still be barriers you're going to go against. But as long as you can see other people being successful, I think that makes a huge difference. So for teachers being able to to showcase that and, and find those role models, that makes a big difference in, in every student's life. And I certainly, I had them, and that's why this is a career path available for me. Same with, uh, you know, for Teresa as well. One of the exciting things is that we can use technology to make our circle bigger than we ever have before. So if you are in a rural or remote area, you now have the opportunity to connect with people like Sean and Kelly from Florida when I'm sitting in Stockton, Manitoba. So those resources are, are out there for you. There are connections that will help you dive in. You don't have to know everything to get started. That's hugely encouraging, both for teachers and for their students, I think. I wish we could talk so much longer with you guys. I definitely would love to do a follow-up to hear more about your exchange program and to see how you guys are doing in a couple of years, even six months from now. So we will definitely keep in touch. Thank you both very much for joining us. And we're looking forward to speaking with you again. Have a great afternoon. Right. Thank you. For Teaching Python, this is Kelly. And this is Sean. Signing yeah. off.